0: My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, It's my privilege to bring you God's Word today. And uh, we find ourselves concluding what has been an eight-month series in the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you're here for the first time, hey, we're just at the very end. Spoiler alert. (laughs) You're going to learn what happens in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to 1 Samuel 31 and by means of introduction I'll just say that the last few messages we've seen really the climax and conclusion of David's story at least as it relates to 1 Samuel and uh, over the last 2 months or so it's been this powerful picture of what God's God can do to someone in a wilderness season 10 years of testing in the wilderness And what we saw happen in David's life, we saw him bloom like a desert rose, grow from immaturity to a person of faith and mercy and moral beauty. Um, David's arc goes from low to high in the book. We saw him brought from the pastures, through the wilderness to the palace. Um, high. But there's one major character whose arc has yet to resolve. And that major character is Saul. (laughs) Yeah, man. And Saul's arc, character arc, has gone in the opposite direction. He started high. He was tall. He was taller than everyone else in Israel. He started at the palace from a place of popularity and strength. But in where, which direction has he gone? Down. A downward spiral rooted in his own faithlessness Insecurity, pride. We've seen him move from just being an insecure big small man to a violent and radically jealous big small man. And so we've had one arc of one major character, low to high, one high to low. It's almost as if Hannah knew what she was talking about when she began this book with her song, talking about how the Lord makes the poor rich and the rich poor and takes the low and exalts them and humbles those who are proud. We're going to see in this chapter Saul's final moments, the ultimate consequences of his sin. His life catches up to us. And I want to look at it from three angles. The consequences to Saul, the collateral damage, and finally, we see a light shining in the darkness. The consequences to Saul, collateral damage, and a light shining in the darkness. But before we do that, let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your book again, would you be present with us? You have been so faithful to us in this study. Would you come once again to illumine this very ancient story in this ancient text so that we, living thousands of years later, might still glean wisdom and truth. That we, uh, these words might be like a ladder that we could climb, that would bring us into your presence, where you would have a word for each one of us. Um, And so, Lord, be with us today as we look at Saul, a sobering passage. If there's warnings for us, let it warn us. Um, If there's encouragement here, let us be encouraged, Uh, but ultimately, uh, let us be led to the foot of our Savior Jesus, because he has everything that we need. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name, amen. All right, so I'm going to give a little bit of background first for those who haven't been here for a while. So last week in chapter 30, we saw possibly David's greatest leadership moment to date. David is in the wilderness. He's in the city of Ziklag. You remember his, his, his army is away. And while the army is away, the city of Ziklag gets sacked, burned. Their wives and children get carried away. The men, David and his men, get to the city And they're so sorrowful, so gripped with grief that they cry until they can't cry anymore. And the men want to kill David because they don't know what to do with their grief and their anger. But David turns to the Lord in faith, finds faith and hope not only for himself but for his men as well. Ultimately goes and has a great victory giving rest and relief to weary warriors around the way, showing mercy and faith each step in the way, recovering everything that was lost, and not only bringing it back home, but this this band that had destroyed Ziklag had raided southern Israel. And we see David restoring back not only what they've lost, but what The southern area of of Israel had lost as well. The story, it's a high moment for David. It's important to remember that this is happening because chapter 31 happens at the exact same time. So these two chapters are put right beside one another and they are happening concurrently. The the first word in the Hebrew grammar of our text is meanwhile. So like back at the farm, at the same time while this is happening. So what the author wants to do is for us to draw a comparison. In the south, David is having this great victory. In the north, Saul is fighting the Philistines. Two leaders, two battles, two outcomes. Did I set it up good? Verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell, slain on Mount Gilboa. Now everything we need to know about this battle is summed up in that first verse. It did not go well. And in a Hebrew narrative, it will often tell you in one sentence the summary of a whole chapter and then give you all the details. They didn't give spoiler alerts back then. They just told you the end of the story and you just got to go. But we shouldn't be surprised by this outcome. It's been the way Saul's story has been headed for a long time. If you've been along for the ride throughout the series, you know that there has been this long and slow decline. Saul, who had been unwilling to address his faults, unwilling to surrender his life and his reign to God, though he was given opportunity after opportunity to do so. And we have seen him become a person of violence and pride and murderous rage. This is where the story has been heading. And if we had any question about that, we have been told many times along the way to expect a tragic end for Saul. Not once, but twice as recently as chapter 28, God's prophet Samuel has predicted Saul's defeat and death. Predicted that Saul and his children would die in this battle on this day. And so we're not surprised, but that doesn't make the story any less tragic. Tragic. And after this summary in verse 1, we're given a detailed record of the tragedy in verses 2 through 6. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab in Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. It's a tragic story. The first thing we read about is the death of Saul's sons. And any close reader of the book will just stop at the name Jonathan and mourn. He's just one of the bright spots in such a dark book. Jonathan had been godly. Jonathan was courageous. We wanted to see Jonathan survive uh, in David's kingdom. And we wonder what the possibilities might have been had he done so. But sadly, Saul's choices cost Jonathan his life. And as we'll see, it's just the first casualties in what is uh, so much collateral damage. When we blow up our lives, it affects the people around us, doesn't it? After telling us of his sons, the text details Saul's own death. And we're told that Saul ends up fleeing up Mount Galboa, trying to get away from the foot soldiers. But you can't outrun destiny. And he's caught by the Philistine archers. He's hit with arrows. He's badly wounded. And afraid of being found by the Philistines, And misused and tortured, he orders his armor bearer to draw his sword and kill him. But the armor bearer refuses to do it. And so Saul falls on his own sword. Now, that little scene is packed full of meaning. First, you have the armor bearer's refusal. And if this were a class, let's pretend it is. I would ask the class, do you remember who Saul's first armor bearer was? David, that's right. And some bright kid would say, it was Jesus. And I would say, it's not Jesus. You think the answer is Jesus. It's not always Jesus. And then someone else would say, David. And he would say, that's right. It was David. David. And then I would ask, and how did Saul's first armor bearer deal with Saul? Would he have taken Saul's life? And another bright kiddo in the class would say, no, we've seen that. I've been here and I've gotten all my participation stars. We saw, we saw it in En We've seen it twice in the story that David was given the opportunity to take Saul out. And he wouldn't do it. He said, I forbid to do this thing to the Lord's anointed. I will never put my hand against the Lord anointed, David said. And this armor bearer kind of stands in for David. It's almost like we're getting a whole a little snapshot of the whole David and Saul story here. That David, despite provocation and opportunity, knew mercy had learned to respect what God was doing in another person's life. And that same respect and honor was shared by this armor bearer. Everyone around Saul recognized the great thing that God had done in Saul's life. Saul never got it. The gift of it all. The privilege and wonder and grace of being God's anointed. His heart was never melted by it. And in the end, he ends up being his worst enemy. And then you have Saul falling on his own sword. Now think about swords and the story of 1 Samuel. If you've been around, the sword has been symbolic throughout the book. Symbolic of someone trying to save themselves symbolic of what it means to do life in your own strength rather than depending upon God. And we saw David in the wilderness, didn't we, often reach for a sword when he should have been reaching for the Bible, should have been reaching for the ephod, should have been reaching out to God in prayer. And you remember back to chapter 17 when Saul, before the battle with Goliath, says to David, take my sword. Take my way of doing things. Fight the battle in this way. And David refuses. And he relies on God. And he gets the victory. So the sword that David refused against Goliath, Saul now uses to take his own life. It's this moment rife with symbolism. What the scripture is saying It's saying, you know what killed Saul? The fact that he wouldn't let go of the sword. This is the reason for his downfall. He never surrendered to God. God made him who he was. But he believed he needed to be a self-made man. The Philistines didn't kill Saul. David didn't remove him from the throne. Saul did it. To himself. He fashioned his own downfall. Through his faithlessness. And through his disobedience. He was in the end. His own worst enemy. Do you know what it's like. To be your own. Worst enemy. It's a truly tragic story. And not only because of what happens to to Saul but also because of the collateral damage. Let's look at that beginning in verse 7. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And so this is all happening in North Israel. And what it's saying is that the people living around this this battle in all of these cities, they see and hear about the great defeat and they all flee. And the Philistines come and make their home in the cities of Northern Israel. Now what's Really ironic about that is the reason that the people wanted a king in the first place is because of the threat of the Philistines. The Philistines were threatening to come and to take land away from Israel. And so 40 years into Saul's rule, we are right back to where we began. Things are actually worse than they were before. This is, this is like a reverse conquest. Israel is losing ground that they had taken. Collateral damage. It continues in verse 8 through 10. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, that's literally the gospel, to the house of their idols and to the people. They put their armor in the temple of Astaroth, that's their God, and they fastened his body to the wall in Beth Shan, it's brutal, but relatively common in the ancient world. For an army to go back through the slain and see if they can find anything valuable, and they found something very valuable—the body of the king—and they thought we can use this, and so they took trophies. Both Saul's head and his weapons, and they paraded it around Philistines, preaching the gospel. The gospel is always great news about a battle that has been won. And these Philistines were bringing good news to their people and bringing those trophies ultimately before their idols and placed them in the house of their God. Why? Because in that day, you understood that if your army won, your God won. And that means Israel's God had lost. They believed their God defeated the God of Israel. And so there is collateral damage, not only with people being hurt by Saul's choices, but in the end, God's name is mocked. And isn't that what can happen when especially leaders fail and fall? People get hurt, and God's name is mocked. It's true in Saul's day, and it's true in ours. The God of the universe puts his reputation in the hands of his children to rightly represent him in the world, especially in the hands of those who are spiritual leaders, whether of your friends or your kids or your church. And when we fail to rightly represent God to the world, We affect the world's view of God. We are stewards of God's glory. And so the sadness and tragedy of this text is not only that people have been hurt, but that the glory of God has been diminished in the world. Holy cow. Is there any light in the darkness? There's a little. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them there and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted 7 days and so for the Philistines' royal bodies were the object of sports sport and they had horribly violated them and they had hung the bodies of Saul and his sons on the wall of Bethshan um But the people of Jabesh-Gilead were told of this desecration and they came running to the rescue. Saul's first act as king, and really the one act that he did that was worth something, was he saved the people of Jabesh-Gilead from a tyrant called Achish, the snake. They never forgot that that. Saul had done them a great solid. And had delivered them. And so they remembered Saul with gratitude. They were the beneficiaries of his first kingly act. And even though they knew he was fatally flawed. And at this point divinely rejected. He had died as God's anointed. And so... The last act of his life is actually a noble one as these valiant men rally themselves and move all the way through the night to be able to rescue the remains of Saul and his family and to give them a proper burial and then mourn for seven days and fast. So in this moment of darkness, there, are th- there is this Blink of light. Not all is lost in Israel. There is still honor. There are still debts of gratitude being paid. There is still these little bits of moral excellence and beauty. It's it's what what 1 Samuel has been doing all along. It's been such a dark backdrop. Remember Eli, Hophni, Phinehas? Their sons, the Philistines, all the gross stuff with Saul. The portrait has been so dark, but all along the way, there's been these glimmers of light. Hannah, Jonathan, Abigail, the men of Jabesh Gilead. Lights shining in the darkness. And what we know, Is that even while northern Israel lay desolate. In the south. There's a king on the rise. And for ten years. In the wilderness. A decade. God has been cultivating his heart. And spirit. To be just the kind of king. And leader. That the people will need. A person of faith. A person of mercy, a person of moral character, a person of humility who has dependence upon God. Lights shining in the darkness. And that there's one other light in this dark story. It's that this has all fallen out according to God's word. And though these have been predictions of judgment, we are given some hope and comfort as God's people. That even in dark times, these these circumstances are held within God's purpose and promise. And if God's word of judgment is coming through for Saul, Saul, God's promises to his people through David, well, those things we can be sure will also come through. Consequences for Saul, collateral damage, lights in the darkness. What do we learn from all of this? It's hard to sum up eight months of time in a book but I would say one of the things that I've learned from traveling through the whole book together is that you really need to watch how much trust you put in a human leader, whether it's a prophet or a priest or a king. This, this book started in darkness, ended in darkness, and we've seen about six different leaders pop and try to fix the thing. Priests in Eli, a prophet in Samuel, a king in Saul. And sure, you get David, but he's going to mess things up too. How much trust can you put in a human leader? Whether it be a parent, whether it be a podcast influencer, whether it be a politician, whether it be a president or a priest, these people will fail you. They have tragic flaws. They are needed in the world, but they can do a tremendous amount of harm and a and a little bit of good. <laughs> and it would say in, in, an, in a time when the bad leaders of the church get so much press. And they've done so much damage. There's been so much collateral damage, hasn't there? From all of the moral missteps from these religious leaders. I think that the book of First Samuel has constantly pushed us to look at the little lights the lights shining in the darkness, and to have us believe that even in seasons of decline, God is preparing new leadership, fresh leadership, fresh a fresh movement of his spirit. And I believe that's true. On a more personal note, it's hard for me to look at this story and not ask, how might I be falling on my own sword? How do I always make a mess of it for myself? What are those habits that are always getting me into trouble that I refuse to surrender to God? And we're reminded that it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to end this way for Saul. Samuel was very clear to Saul that that Saul could trust God. And if he would obey him, that God would give him everything he needed. That he could have been empowered to be a great king. And the difference between David and Saul was not that David never messed up and that Saul did. It wasn't that David never sinned and Saul did. The difference was Saul was unwilling to surrender when he did mess up. He was determined to be his own God, determined to do it his own way. There was no confession, no repentance. David's heart was alive to God. And so Saul's demise is this powerful lesson. As it's the lesson of all tragic stories. It's a warning for us not to repeat his mistakes. But it's also a reminder that our deepest character flaws don't have to define us. They don't have to be the end of the story. Not when it comes to the God who's ultimately revealed in Jesus. Because that is where this is heading. David will become the next king and David will be a great king for a time. And there will be a decade of peace and safety. But David is still human. And David will fall and he will fall hard. And there will be collateral damage. And his life and mistakes will affect the lives of thousands and thousands of people. And so even at the end of 2 Samuel, there's this longing in our hearts for real leadership. For the true king who's going to set things right. And so then you fast forward hundreds of years to another dark season. And and Israel has lost a lot more ground. Not to the Philistines, now it's the Romans. And there's still a tyrant king on the throne in in Herod, but there's good news of great joy because one of David's line has been born in Bethlehem. A king like David, but unlike David. Who would have imagined that God himself would take on human flesh in order to be that king that our souls longed for And to establish a kingdom of peace and mercy and grace that would have no end. And that king is also like Saul, but unlike Saul. Unlike Saul in so many ways, but like Saul in that he was also nailed in humiliation to a wall at an intersection for all to see. Only the king's wall was a cross. Where Jesus shed his blood for the sins of the world. Where he would conquer sin and death forever. Not the Amalekites or the Ammonites or the Philistines. He offers forgiveness to anyone who chooses to surrender to him. The king of mercy. The king of grace. The shepherd king. Who comes to restore all that's lost and to give it back. This is kind of the sobering reality. You only get one shot at this life. You only get one chance to write your story. Which arc is it going to be? High to low? Or will you go low? to be lifted high in the person of Jesus. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of First Samuel. It has been such a mentor to me, such a guide for wisdom, such a challenge to me. Uh, and even now, I'm brought to the end of myself as I think about all of the ways that I am digging my own grave, (laughs) all the ways that uh, I make it harder for myself, all the times that I've hurt people around me because of the choices that I've made, all the times that I've diminished your glory because of the choices that I've made, And yet, you say that when I recognize this and when I'm brought low, you say a broken and contrite heart is like a beautiful thing to you. It's like a jewel to you. You're so drawn to it. And you come to those places of humility, to people who are dependent upon you, crying out to you, who need rescue, and you lift us up. And you bring us high. And you take us from the ash heaps of the world. And you sit us with the princes, and the kings, and the queens. You take us from the pasture through the wilderness to the palace, if we'll let you. I pray that we would. And as we look towards the last week in Advent, I pray that we would prepare our hearts in the wilderness. That we would make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.